Nobody can be too Jewish. That's exactly it. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> Shalom and welcome to the Two Jewish Radio Show with Rabbi Sam Kohan and Friends, a weekly serving of everything Jewish. We'll have a great hour together today of news, music, comedy, and conversation. Our guest this morning is Marsha Ryman Sells, author of the novel based on the true story of a Spanish community that kept faith with its lost Jews for nearly 500 years at Vitoria. We'll also have a visit from our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Please email your comments to us at 2jewishradio18 at gmail.com or visit us on the web at 2jewishradio.com. The opinions of the host and guests on 2Jewish are their own and not those of the radio station. 2Jewish is paid for by 2Jewish radio programs and podcasts, Tucson, Arizona. And now, here's Rabbi Sam Kohan and 2Jewish. Shalom, and a very slightly early Lishana Tova Lachilonim, a happy secular new year, or as Israelis really say, happy Sylvester. Why, you may ask, do Israelis call the secular new year Sylvester? And, well, I mean, who was Sylvester? It's a little complicated. Essentially, in Israel, they named this upcoming holiday, which was more or less established by the Roman Empire for bureaucratic reasons, consulships began January 1st with the name it was later called by Christians in the 4th century to honor the anti-Semitic Pope in place at the time of the Emperor Constantine and the Council of Nicaea. In other words, they and we celebrate a festival honoring both a pagan administrative holiday and an anti-Semitic Pope. Oh, and if Christmas actually commemorated Jesus's birth, then New Year's eighth day after that, celebrates his bris. That's how it is celebrated among a variety of Christian denominations still today, as his bris and naming day. To say the least, this is a rather odd occasion for Jewish festivities of any kind. In truth, even in an ordinary year, and this 2024 beginning is far from ordinary for Israel, with the Gaza War ongoing, But even in an ordinary year, they don't care much about this holiday in Israel, and perhaps neither should we Jews, since we already had our own Jewish New Year back in September at Rosh Hashanah. Still, the opportunity to gain some perspective, to look around and see where we are, well, that's never a wasted chance. Beyond the personal desire we all may or may not have to make New Year's resolutions, and to seek a better year in 2024, which is a good and valuable thing to do, it's impossible for us here at Two Jewish not to use this moment to reflect on how we ought to be thinking about things in Gaza right now. I was asked by my sister last week just what I thought about when Bibi Netanyahu, Prime Minister of Israel for almost all of these last recent years, and in charge when the disastrous atrocities of October 7th occurred, would have to take responsibility and finally step down. The standard Israeli response after October 7th was that Netanyahu must go, but not now. Not while Israel is at war with a genocidal, vicious, anti-Semitic Palestinian terrorist group armed to the teeth by Iran, who has just perpetrated the worst atrocity since the Holocaust. So my sister Deborah asked, do I think it's finally time now for Bibi to go? 
While polls put Israeli support for Netanyahu at something like 25%, and there is a nearly universal belief that the horrifying disasters of October 7th and the subsequent war is to a good degree his fault, the standard answer has been it's not yet time for him to go. Frankly, I agree. In my view, Netanyahu must prosecute the war against these Islamist Hamas Palestinian murderers, rapists, torturers, and kidnappers to the fullest extent that Israel can do. After they are eradicated and their power destroyed, he should resign, allowing Israel to blame him for any collateral damage unavoidable when fighting Palestinian terrorists who hide behind children and women, who put their terror tunnels and rocket launchers in schools and hospitals, and who steal life-saving supplies for their own stockpiles. My answer may impress some of you as cynical, but if Netanyahu truly cares about Israel more than his own skin, he has a unique opportunity now both to destroy Israel's most proximate and most horrifying enemy and to take the international heat for doing so. And then he can accept responsibility for the monumental failure of his policies in Gaza and leave the political scene. I also believe that the best way to get him to go is to guarantee that Netanyahu stays out of prison on these corruption charges, which are frankly pretty small potatoes in all of this. Let him ride off into the sunset already, but only after Hamas is destroyed. To play us in on this final morning of 2023, here's cantor David Dudu Fisher and his classic rendition of the prayer Rachemna. Have mercy on us, God, which we surely need, but in an upbeat version for this coming 2024 year. Rachem na 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 na, Hashem elokeinu. 
That was cantor David Dudu Fisher singing Rachemna on this last show of 2023 for Two Jewish. Our guest this morning, Marsha Ryman Sells, learned an extraordinary true story when she was in Spain on a visit, and it haunted her ever since. It became the novel At Vitoria, keeping faith with a lost Jewish community for centuries. Hear this fascinating tale when she joins us in just a moment on Two Jewish. We are the soul of Tucson. We are your neighbors and friends. Our commitment to provide the very best relies on the finest products and services you, our community, has to offer. Together, we make Tucson thrive. When we win, you win. Casino del Sol, the soul of Tucson. Enterprise of the Pasquayaki tribe. We are delighted to welcome to Two Jewish our guest this morning, Marsha Ryman Sells, the author of the new book At Victoria. Well, not so new, but really a terrific book that we've just discovered A City's Medieval Promise Between Christians and Sephardic Jews. She's um, uh, uh, an author of varied talents who's done a lot of other things. Good morning and welcome to Two Jewish. Thank you, and thank you for having me on your program. It's a pleasure. So um, tell us about the inspiration for At Vittoria. Is there a true story um, involved here? The, the story of At Vittoria is based on fact. I was traveling in Spain with my husband and another couple just on a vacation, and we came across the city of Vittoria and the dedication of the town council to the medieval Jews and the Jewish community of the 1400s who lived in Vitoria in the in a Jewish section of town and they were all expelled the Jews were expelled in 1492 and the history is that the Jews knowing they were going to be expelled went to the town council and said, we think we'll be back in a few years. This expulsion order is not going to hold, and we will uh, resume our relationship with you. We ask that you take care of the Jewish cemetery while we're gone, the sacred ground. And the town council signed an oath that they would not cultivate the land of the Jewish cemetery. And that's the origin of the story that... I happened to find when I was traveling in Spain in 2006. So it's really quite a fascinating um, aspect. Look, uh, one of the things that's, I think, perhaps least understood about the 1492 expulsion is that Jews had been expelled from various countries in Europe at various times, from France, I don't know, three, four, five times. And then 20 years later, sometime later, the next king or two kings later would invite them back in. So it wasn't such an unusual expectation. It's the fact that the Christian community maintained this for like four, well, more than four centuries, four and a half, five centuries almost is stunning, isn't it? I was so taken by the story that I 
I couldn't get it out of my head. And as I was traveling through the rest of our trip, I was hearing dialogue of the people from the 1400s in my head and how this all evolved. I found it fascinating. And even more fascinating is that the Christian community actually preserved the Jewish cemetery for this uh, lengthy amount of time and respected the forefathers that made this oath and respected the Jews of the medieval uh, times because the Jews were the physicians in town and they took care of the Christians as well as their own Jewish population. And so in this city of Vitoria, which was very different than cities in other parts of Spain during this time where there were pogroms and um, uh, public displays of torture of the Jews, uh, it didn't happen in Vitoria. And that, to me, showed the, the amazing benefits of integration and understanding people who are of diverse backgrounds. Uh, and we will talk much more, not only about Victoria, but about the story in this uh, really delightful and interesting and informative novel when we come back in a moment with our guest this morning, Marsha ryman Sells here on Too Jewish. Beit Simcha, the House of Joy, a wonderful Jewish synagogue in northwest Tucson and the Catalina Foothills, celebrates a great array of services, classes, and events this winter. Established by passionate, caring congregants and me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, Beit Simcha is a vibrant, vital community that strives every day to serve God with joy. Progressive congregation in northwest Tucson and the Foothills, Beit Simcha is open to everyone throughout the metropolitan area, providing weekly Shabbat services, youth and adult education academy courses, social justice opportunities, outreach, and cultural Jewish programming. Join us in person for Shabbat services or come on Facebook Live. Go to our website, BeitSimchaTucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A, Tucson.org. We welcome members and guests in our sanctuary in person. Call 520-276-5675. That's 520-276-5675. Beit Simcha's religious school is available for school-aged children or grandchildren. Join us for Hebrew school, bar and bat mitzvah programs, Torah Tykes experience, confirmation and teen programs, all in a fun, relaxed setting with great Jewish learning. Go to BeitSimchaTucson.org to sign up. Beit Simcha's services, classes, and events are open to everyone. In-person Friday night and Shabbat morning services are available. 6.30 p.m. Shabbat evening celebration services with full music and an Oneg Shabbat. Saturday morning, 9 a.m. Torah study, 10 a.m. services, and Kiddush. All with me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, leading them. You can also come on Facebook. Our Facebook page is Beit Simcha Tucson, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A Tucson. All of our Adult Education Academy classes are both live and on Zoom. You can come to those by signing up at our website, BeitSimchaTucson.org. Our wonderful religious school is also available there. For more information about Beit Simcha to come to services, religious school, Torah Tykes programs, bar and bat mitzvah, confirmation, high school programs, rich array of adult 
Adult Education Academy courses, taught live and on Zoom, and all of our services in person and on Facebook. Go to BeitSimchaTucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A Tucson.org, or call 520-276-5675. That's 520-276-5675, BeitSimchaTucson.org. Join me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, in the fastest-growing Jewish congregation community in all of Arizona. If you have a question, comment, compliment, or criticism, please email us at 2jewishradio18 at gmail.com. That's T-O-O jewishradio18 at gmail.com. Or visit our website, 2jewishradio.com. You can hear all past and present shows through the website, streaming us from there, or downloading us from the Apple iTunes Store's very popular Jewish podcast, Top 10 in America, Corner Moment Magazine, over 200,000 downloads on Podbean, and now on Spotify, too. Post a rating, review 2Jewish wherever you listen to us. Those comments help. The stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation, known for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery has faithfully served the Tucson community and the Jewish community for over 100 years. We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. The most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of southern Arizona, Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful, grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470. While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection, tradition, and serenity. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery offers the best to the community and to you. Call 520-888-7470. To speak to a family advisor at Evergreen, call 520-888-7470. We welcome our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Rabbi. And an early happy Sylvester. Um, You have just returned from another one of your small journeys, a trip completely circumnavigating the globe, um, in which you were in, among other places, Singapore, and uh, read your first full book since COVID. So uh, let's chat a little bit about all that. Right. Um, So Singapore is an amazing trading center it's built its wealth and it's incredibly prosperous i mean singaporeans are so rich per capita they don't need visas to come to the u.s <laughs> um and when you look out into the harbor at singapore for miles and miles you see hundreds and hundreds of boats docked that are unloaded by tenders um it's not a container port really it's an old-fashioned wow port but that's how they built their wealth. And they have that in common with both 
Shanghai and Sing- and Hong Kong. Hong Kong, right. Although, you know, different histories, obviously, and very different regimes today. So by chance, years ago, I bought this book probably in 2019. No, well, it's published in 2020, so I, I right, looked it so up. <laughs> in, in, in 2020, okay. But before the lockdown, I bought the book. And once the lockdown started, I was too distracted to read more than a page of anything. So I didn't read any books. Luckily, I brought this book along on the trip with me. And there were days when I couldn't tear myself away from it. It's so good. It's called The Last, Jews, the Last Kings of Shanghai. And it's about two rival Jewish families, both originally from Baghdad both with very famous names in the Jewish world. One is Kaduri, and the other is Sassoon. And they both started off as traders, and they moved in and did things on very advantageous terms because the Opium Wars had basically flattened China, and there was essentially no effective Chinese government. The only government there were the foreigners who had concessions. So like Shanghai itself was divided into a French concession and a British concession and an international concession that was kind of miscellaneous, whatever. And these expatriates were effectively the local governments in these huge trading centers that always had a potential for great wealth, even after the opium trade ended. Um, and both these families, the Sassoons and the Kaduris, basically built their wealth through trading in commodities, through real estate, through the development of big, famous luxury hotels. And ultimately, when they shifted their focus to Hong Kong as a result of the communist takeover of the People's Republic of China, they got into the business of producing power. So the power, light, electricity in Hong Kong is all owned by these guys. Well, that that I didn't know. That's fascinating. So they control the utilities, basically. Right. They also built the first nuclear power plant in China after the thaw, after Nixon's overtures to China After the in the early 70s. ping pong tennis and all right. the rest of it, right? So that signaled to them that China would be open to them and China turned to them as the most successful businessmen they'd ever seen to develop nuclear power plants. Um, and the other thing that's important about both these families is they were tremendously charitable. They set up schools, orphanages, uh, Hevra Kadishas, whatever, and they were known for their generosity and the fruits of their good works helped China make the transition to a sort of modern country. It, it, it's fascinating, and I might share a little bit of my observations having been in Shanghai just a few years ago, um, and they're kind of uh, I would say continuing influence, even though they're not really there anymore on the development of a, a contemporary Jewish community there. Thanks, Tom. We will talk next year. I actually. look forward to it. It's time now for our old Jewish joke of the week. Jewish humor, your Bubby and Zadie new, brought to you by Two Jewish as a public service. What's the difference between a Jewish pessimist and a Jewish optimist? 
The Jewish pessimist says, things cannot get any worse. The Jewish optimist says, sure they can. That was the old Jewish joke of the week, special feature of two Jewish, just for you. You should live and be well. And now a word of Torah. The first Shabbat of the secular year coincides with reading a great portion of Torah. This happens to be my personal favorite section, the portion of Shmot, beginning of the book of Exodus, in part, well, maybe largely, because it was my own bar mitzvah portion. As you know, we chant the entire Torah over the course of the year in the synagogue, dividing the reading into a series of weekly portions that begin with the start of Genesis in the fall, continuing through the conclusion of Deuteronomy the following autumn. This portion happens to fall on the day I was born, a Shabbat. Therefore, it's the portion I learned from my bar mitzvah some 13 years later. Now, you would think that since we've had the Torah with us for at least two and a half millennia, some 2,500 years, and some people say 3,200 years, no part of the Torah could possibly belong to any one Jew. And you'd be right. But when you spend a solid year or more closely studying a section of the Torah, as our bar and bat mitzvah students do, and when you do so at 12 years of age, you start to feel like that portion is not only special to you, but kind of belongs to you. It becomes your Torah portion, as though you were the first and only Jew ever to come so close to it. Although as a rabbi and cantor, I've studied many portions and immersed myself in the texts and commentaries of every one of the weekly sedras over the years since my bar mitzvah so long ago, at some level I still feel shmot is my portion there are several reasons. First, I really did spend like two years studying this section with my father, Rabbi and Cantor Baruch Kohan, and he is a fine teacher. In the course of that time, I came nearly to memorize the 124 verses of this portion to know the ins and outs of many of the commentaries as well. And while all of this happened um, a while ago, there has been an annual opportunity to review and re-explore my portion since most years I chant the portion in the synagogue. But the most important reason Shmot has continued to be such a source of interest and inspiration is the text itself of this first portion of the book of Exodus. It's filled with outstanding stories, both dramatic and exceptionally important. Shmot commences with the Israelites living well in Egypt, and then a new king arises who knew not Joseph, Ayakom Melchadash al Mitzrayim, and the people are enslaved. Moses is born, and the fabulous tale of slavery, redemption, and freedom begins to play out. Nearly from birth, Moses is the most interesting and important person in the Torah, perhaps in all of world religion. He's courageous, forthright, hot-tempered, humble, persistent, chutzpahdik, in every way a very human hero. At the start of the climactic section of this week's portion, Moses is herding sheep in the wilderness when he comes upon a famous bush, a bush burns with a furious flame, but it is unconsumed. God appears to Moses out of that flame and instructs him to stand up for his people, to go back to the Egypt he fled as a fugitive and liberate the enslaved Israelites. To put it mildly, Moses is reluctant. He argues he's not worthy, says no one will believe him, tells God that he stutters, comes up with a variety of reasons he should not go back to Egypt. 
When God answers each of his objections with a solution, Moses finally just refuses to go. God, however, has a certain power to persuade. And of course, this being the Torah, our primary religious text, God is always right. By the end of the portion, Moses finds himself back in Egypt, his first efforts to liberate the people rebuffed. He himself already discredited in his quest to free his people from domination. The growth of Moses into the protean liberation figure who redeems the Israelites, well, that will take two more weekly portions. But the lesson here in Shemot is that if God chooses a course for you, no matter what your personal feelings, you should probably go along for the ride. One way or another, your direction in life has been selected. Or perhaps the lesson is greater. Many times, our reluctance to accept a sacred task, to do what we are urged to do, is simply a combination of obstinacy and fear. We know that we should take a new course in life, embrace hope and promise over the familiar and the ordinary failures, but our own inertia holds us back. May the burning bush illumine a new sacred path for each of us in this new secular year of 2024, as it did for Moses so long ago. A personal note, nine years ago I stood at the foot of Mount Sinai and saw what the monks at St. Catherine's Monastery say is the very bush Moses saw burn but not consume 3,250 years ago. While the identification of that particular shrub seems mm, dubious, even the location of Mount Sinai itself is in some doubt, the continued power of the tale teaches us that the meaning of a narrative is often more powerful than the simple facts. Similarly, our own narratives, our life stories, like our own Torah portions, can have deep meaning, whether or not we turn out to be the next Moses. Every human story has its own richness, beauty, and power. When we return in a moment, our guest this morning, Marsha Ryman Sells, continues to share the story of the lost Jewish city in the Basque region of Spain, how its Christian residents preserved its memory and their vows to its members for five centuries. Learn all about it when we come back in a moment on Two Jewish. We continue with our Two Jewish update on news of Jews around the world with commentary. Critics blasted New York Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez for a Christmas message comparing Jesus to the Palestinians. Some said it invoked the historic lie that Jews killed Jesus. Drawing parallels between Jesus' persecutors and present-day Israel, Ocasio-Cortez wrote in an Instagram post that Jesus was born in modern-day Palestine, uh-huh, under a government carrying out a massacre of innocents. According to the New Testament, of course, Jesus was a Jew who lived within the modern borders of Israel and was killed by the Roman forces ruling the territory at the time. He was part of a targeted population being indiscriminately killed to protect an unjust leader's power, Ocasio-Cortez wrote. Thousands of years later, 
right-wing forces are violently occupying Bethlehem as similar stories unfold for today's Palestinians. The New York lawmaker, a member of the squad of outspoken progressives in Congress, referred to Jesus' family as Jewish Palestinians. Hmm. The text in the post was superimposed over an image of a baby doll in a pile of concrete rubble, a variation of the traditional nativity scene that has become a motif for pro-Palestinian terrorist activists ahead of Christmas. Christian leaders in Bethlehem, traditionally seen as the birthplace of Jesus, called off their Christmas celebrations this year in solidarity with the Palestinian terrorists of Gaza. Ocasio-Cortez's post made no mention of Hamas, of Israeli hostages in Gaza, or the October 7th atrocities that claimed the lives of 1,200 people in Israel, mostly civilians, and set off the war with a Hamas terrorist group. The Gaza-Hamas Health Ministry, controlled by the Palestinian terrorists, says more than 20,000 people in Gaza have died during the war. In a second Instagram post last week, doubling down, Ocasio-Cortez posted a video of rather Munther Isaac, a Lutheran cleric in Bethlehem, delivering a sermon with a similar message. Ocasio-Cortez wrote in her post, When we justify the bombing of children, Jesus is under the rubble. Former Anti-Defamation League leader and past guest of two Jewish, Abraham Foxman, called Ocasio-Cortez's initial post hateful and dangerous, citing the historic libel claiming Jews are collectively responsible for killing Christ, or deicide. The charge, refuted by the Catholic Church since the 1960s and rejected by many other Christian denominations, has fueled anti-Semitism in Christian communities for many centuries. She invoked the charge that Jews are again killing Jesus, Foxman wrote. Foxman served as the national director of the ADL from 1987 to 2015. Former U.S. Ambassador to Israel David Friedman called the post a reinvention of history, as indeed it is. U.S. Representative Richie Torres, a New York Democrat, criticized comparisons between Jesus and the Palestinians in a post that did not directly mention Ocasio-Cortez. It is anti-Semitic to compare Israelis to the Romans who murdered Jesus. Associating Jews with the murder of Jesus is anti-Semitism. Pro-Palestinian protesters repeatedly compared Jesus to that of the Palestinians in the lead-up to Christmas. A leading and virulently anti-Semitic New York group, within our lifetime, vowed to cancel Christmas in a protest near Midtown's Rockefeller Center Christmas tree, saying celebrations are unacceptable during the war. During the protest, demonstrators carried a mannequin representing Jesus' mother Mary, holding a child's body wrapped in white within our lifetime, explicitly advocates for Israel's destruction. It endorsed the October 7th murders. Activists within the group have been accused of committing violent hate crimes against Jews. During the Christmas protest, demonstrators scuffled with police. At least six were arrested. In other news, the U.S. Department of Education announced it has opened a new Title VI investigation into the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, along with two more into George Mason University and the Newark Public Schools, related to complaints of mistreatment based on quote-unquote shared ancestry. The investigations round out a busy year for the department's civil rights office. It has doubled down on anti-Semitism and Islamophobia-related complaints at universities and K-12 schools since the outbreak 
outbreak of the Israel-Hamas wars. The vast majority of those are anti-Semitism complaints. David Weisberg filed the UNC complaint December 7th, alleging a member of the university faculty and a guest speaker on campus made anti-Israel comments in the weeks after the October 7th Hamas murders. Reached for comment, Weisberg said the information in the complaint came from Peter Reitzes, a board member of Voice for Israel of North Carolina. UNC Chapel Hill has fostered a hostile campus environment towards Jewish and pro-Israel students for years, Reitzes said. I hope the investigation leads to UNC providing Jewish and pro-Israel students and faculty a safe and productive campus environment that is institutionally neutral on Israel and the Palestinians. Weisberg complaint details two incidents of anti-Israel or pro-Hamas rhetoric at UNC that the administration should have responded to more vigorously. In the first, a communications professor named E. Chebrilu stated during two different classes that Israel and the U.S. do not give an SHIT about international law or war crimes, and that Israel is a clearly fascist state committing a genocide under the guise of it supposedly being the only democracy in the Middle East. Well... It is the only democracy in the Middle East. In the second incident, a guest speaker at an event endorsed by two North Carolina departments and hosted on UNC's campus stated that October 7th, for many of us from the region, was a beautiful day. That was recorded. The speaker, Rania Masri, co-director of a North Carolina environmental group, said she would not be in the least apologetic of the violence of the oppressed or the occupied, adding, let us demand the eradication of Zionism. Hamas gunmen murdered over 1,200 Israelis, mostly civilians, on October 7th, kidnapped more than 240, and systematically committed acts of rape, arson, and torture. In a December 22nd letter to Weisberg, Dan Greenspan, a staffer at the Department of Education Civil Rights Office, confirmed its investigation is related to his complaint. Greenspan wrote that the department will investigate whether the university responded to alleged harassment of students based on national origin of shared Jewish ancestry in a manner consistent with the requirements of Title VI. Weisberg's complaint states that for North Carolina to allow such incidents is in violation of a shared agreement the university struck with the Department of Education in response to a 2019 Title VI complaint. In that agreement, administrators agreed to respond to and investigate incidents of anti-Semitic harassment on campus and hold anti-Semitism training for staff. The case stemmed from a complaint filed by the Zionist Organization of America over a conference related to the Gaza Strip that the university held jointly with Duke. The conference featured a satirical performance by a rapper that was clearly anti-Semitic. Weisberg's complaint says UNC has a responsibility to follow the International Holocaust Remembrance Association's definition of anti-Semitism, which includes some forms of criticism of Israel, in particular seeking Israel's destruction. While the definition has been widely adopted, including by the Department of Education, it has been criticized by some who say the definition could punish speakers for legitimate criticism of Israel. Congress has taken a particular interest in the University of North Carolina in its efforts to address campus anti-Semitism. A resolution in the U.S. Senate condemning anti-Semitic rhetoric on campus specifically references a statement posted on social media by North Carolina's chapter of Students for Justice in Palestine, reading, It is our moral obligation to be in solidarity with the dispossessed, no matter the pathway to liberation they choose to take. This includes violence.
George Mason University has made headlines since October 7th for anti-Semitism-related activities on its Fairfax, Virginia campus. Public University issued an October 31st statement condemning video of someone ripping down Israeli hostage posters on campus, as well as efforts to dox the perpetrator. The school also banned a 28-year-old from campus for four years for passing out anti-Semitic flyers. With these latest schools, the Department of Education will complete the year with 38 Title VI shared ancestry investigations opened into colleges and K-12 schools since October 7th. Of those, at least 12, and likely far more, are related to anti-Semitism. Some of those cases reference incidents that come before October 7th. And that's the Two Jewish News of Jews Round the World. The stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation, known for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery has faithfully served the Tucson community and the Jewish community for over 100 years. We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. The most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of Southern Arizona, Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful, grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470. While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection, tradition, and serenity. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery offers the best to the community and to you. Call 520-888-7470. To speak to a family advisor at Evergreen, call 520-888-7470. We welcome back to Two Jewish, our guest this morning, Marsha Ryman Sells is a, a writer of uh, breadth, but also um, has a fascinating background as a PhD from the Graduate Management Center at Claremont uh, Graduate University. Um, uh, she has been a financial consultant. She has written widely, and we are delighted to have her here talking about her book um, at Vitoria. So uh, a couple of brief words about this place, Vitoria, Spain. Um, it, it's in the far north, kind of near the Basque region, which is also where the Reconquista began, actually, not in the Basque region, but not far from there in Asturias. And uh, it, it's remarkable that you know, what was really part of the Christian heartland of Spain is a place that showed respect for its Jewish community. Can you tell us a little bit more historically about the, um, you mentioned that the Jews were the physicians of the town. I think there was a, a, uh, an epidemic and the Jews were the ones, the Jewish physicians were the ones who saved. Can you just give us a little bit of that background? 
Uh, the Jews of Vitoria had lived there since about since Roman times. They had come with the Roman population, and the area of Vitoria that Jews lived in uh, was uh, to one side of the city. And the city itself is in the Pyrenees. And I believe that the Basque population of that area, which also considered themselves outsiders from the uh, rest of the, quote, Christian population, uh, what they uh, took to the Jewish population because the Jews were also outsiders. And in Victoria, they seemed to get along very well without any incident and worked together. They kept their distance uh, in terms of separation, but seemed to work together very well. In, in putting yourself back in that time, you must have done a tremendous amount of research. Uh, what was the most surprising thing you discovered doing that? I would say that when I went back to do a research trip to Victoria, I found the original source documents. I went to the city archives of, this, of Victoria, and they had the original paperwork of the oath and what had transpired both in 1492 and in 1952. And that, to wow. me, was <laughs> so um, That's incredible. motivating that I just really was shocked that all at the preservation of all these documents and the fact that people live up to their word. And I think that, to me, is to be respected. Uh, not only to be respected, but a little bit um, of a marvel that those documents survived. It's not like war didn't run through there, the Peninsular Wars. I think uh, Wellington had a famous victory in Victoria in the 19th century. Um, and yet somehow these documents survived and, and it retained its history and its commitment. Um, in the, the story itself, as you developed it, um, you know, 12 years is enough time almost to have a bar mitzvah. Um, that's a long time to write a book. Did it begin to feel like it was like your life at some point? I don't think so. I wrote the book essentially in 30 days. Really? And then I had, yes, and then I had to do all the editing and verification of facts, and I would turn over one fact, and then I would find something else that needed to uh, be understood and explained and researched. And with each new fact, I would uh, go to another fact. And it was so challenging and so wonderful. I just enjoyed every single minute of it. I felt like an archaeologist almost in discovering all the nuances that were needed in order to write the book and how people behaved in the 1400s. The, the cemetery is um, kind of almost a character in the book a little bit. Uh, you were very moved visiting it. Uh, how large is it? It's not that large. It's a sort of, uh, I'm trying to find an analogy, I would say a town square, but a small one, a small village square. 
because when the cemetery was first developed by the Jewish population, you know that when Jews move to a new area, one of the first things they must do is find an area for a cemetery because you never know when you're going to need one. And the uh, was it was actually outside of the city walls, the medieval city walls. And so as the city grew over 450 years, it became the central, a central part of the city. So it was, it's not huge, but it is a city park. And it's very clear. It's a rectangular uh, air plaza. And it's um, very clear that this is a historic spot in Spain. The, their inquisition plays a prominent role in your book. Uh, some of that information, of course, is familiar to, to Jews who know of the period. Um, was your research in that, I mean, it's, it's painful stuff. Tell us a little bit about that. I used the original source documents. I read the testimony of people who had witnessed Inquisition trials. I uh, listened to their voices as they described it. And these were Christians who described the Inquisition trials and the uh, ceremony after that with the burning of the Jews at the stake and the various types of torture that went on. And it was painful to read and sort of a way of saying to myself, how could this possibly happen? And how could anyone be so brutal to another human being? And now we're living through that with the Hamas uh, situation in Gaza, where we saw people are very capable of being brutal. So the situation that's talked about in the, in the book, in terms of the brutality, we're seeing that today, and there's a lot of relevance to today's events. In writing at Vittoria, um, as you immerse yourself in this culture uh, and the experience of these people, um, what was your favorite part about writing the book? I would say I just love the whole experience. <laughs> and the words would just fly out of my fingers onto the keyboard. I would wake up at uh, 5 o'clock in the morning before I went to work to do a couple of hours of writing. And I would just find myself writing, and I would have to call into work and say, I'm going to work from home today. And I could do that since I owned the company. And <laughs> Certain advantages to this right there. <laughs> and so I just, I just had it in my system, and I loved the whole experience and uh, the opportunity that I feel I was given to really express this story in words in, in, a, in, in, in a cohesive way that people could really read the book and capture the experience that people from the Middle Ages had and the Jews, the descendants of, of the people who were expelled. I interviewed descendants when I went to Bayonne, France, and that's where they were living, and that's where they went, and that's where they stayed. And the descendants had their own story uh, of how the information was passed generation to generation. 
And it was same in the Basque country. It was passed from generation to generation. It's a remarkable story. Um, where can people go to find out more about you and to find out more about At Victoria and to get it? The book is on Amazon. Um, just Google Marsha Ryman Sells and it'll pop up. And I have a website, uh, MarshaRymansells.com. I have a Facebook page. So I'm totally available uh, for anybody. I do a lot of uh, book groups and sisterhood and uh, uh, Hadassah and Witzo and various uh, presentations, Jewish National Fund. And I am always willing to talk about the story. It's an incredible story. It's really a great story and an important story now as well. Uh, Marcia, thank you so much for a great visit here on Too Jewish. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. When we come back, we'll hear about next week's guest. Get a final musical play out on Too Jewish. We are the soul of Tucson. We are your neighbors and friends. Our commitment to provide the very best relies on the finest products and services you, our community, has to offer. Together, we make Tucson thrive. When we win, you win. Casino del Sol, the soul of Tucson. Enterprise of the Pasquayaki tribe. Thanks for being here with us this morning on Two Jewish with me, Rabbi Sam Kohan. Join us next week. Our guest will be Jeffrey Feingold, author of the fine short story collections, The Black Hole Pastrami Stories, and There Is No Death in Finding Nemo. Please join us at Congregation Beit Simcha every Friday night. Services and Oneg Shabbat start at 6.30 p.m. Saturday morning to 9 a.m. Torah study, 10 a.m. services, Torah reading in Kiddush, in person, and on our Facebook page. Our play out this morning comes from pianist Yosef Ote, his short ode to the new year. My friends, may you have a Shavua Tov, a good week, a healthy week, a happy Sylvester, a good secular new year, and a week we pray profoundly of justice and peace. Sponsored by two Jewish radio programs, Tucson, Arizona.